0: the rich. Neolibs are a bitch. Medicare for all. bros can suck my balls. Fuck your reply guys. Please don't fuck your reply guys. Just listen to reply guys.
1: Hello and welcome back to reply guys. The leftist feminist comedy podcast for the rest of us. I am Kate Willett, and I'm Julia Claire.
2: Hello, Julia. How are you doing? Hi, Kate. I'm good. How are you? I'm very menstrual. Like I'm having like <laughs> we're I'm not we're not doing video on the intro this week because I have like a polka dot face. Like I'm some kind of acne teen, and I am uh, just very crampy. Um, little Pearl has been a good heating pad. She's been crawling on my tummy, which is nice. Um, but I feel like shit. How how about you?
1: How are you doing? Uh, Oh, uh, doing okay. Um, sounded like my cat was going to throw up, but she didn't. (laughs) That's the kind of, uh, that's the kind of quality content that, that you can expect on this show. Uh, we did get the funniest uh, review of our podcast uh, that I think I've ever seen, um, mostly just because it was specifically it was specifically aimed at me in a way that I just never expected. Um, this review
2: has you know, incel vibes, but I'll, I'll, I'll wait <laughs> until, until you've read it.
1: And I'm not going to read, like, every bad review that uh, I personally get on the show, because I know that I'm, I don't know, different strokes for different folks, but, um, yeah, the review is four stars, and the title of the review is Kate is Delightful, Love Her, and then the body of the review is... Julia has the personality of a wet paper bag.
2: (laughs) I feel like this interview, I I actually, I'm going to provide the sort of counter opinion to this. I think I'm actually jealous of the way that this review went down because i feel like a level of a sexual resentment in this like this person Mm -hmm. is like is mad at you for being so pretty and they're like like a scorned ex-lover yeah it's very (laughs) um yeah it has this review has has uh has weird vibes to it we did get one review um that called us both supermodel level and i'm cherishing that that was
1: yeah that was so nice thank you so much to whoever left that uh i don't know how you maybe. I don't know, how, maybe they, they follow us on Instagram. I was like, how would they know what we look like? But I guess everybody who follows us on Twitter vaguely knows what we look like. Yeah. Um, I had the most pathetic response to, like, knee-jerk response to that review about how my personality is bad. I, I just want to be like, shut up. No, it's not. <laughs> my personality is good as hell. That's the only thing I'm confident about is that I have a good personality.
2: So You have incredible hair
1: incredible thank you yeah Thanks, you. thank you i was I, I talked to my boyfriend about that and he's that's what he said uh he was like i was like
2: my personality is all i have and he said well your hair too i mean uh, but there's, there's many beautiful things about you but i if i was <laughs> walking past you on the street the hair would be the first thing i would notice oh my goodness i see little june in the background that's adorable little, little tiny guys um i am I am, uh, this week it was, I did my first inside show for the, you know, since March, 2020. And, uh, I did like a small show in an art gallery because I'm now on my, uh, have been, had my second dose for a minute. Um, and I am, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm, the world is kind of starting to to reemerge slowly. I know some people are going to yell at me for this, but I actually feel like, you know, once you've gotten your second shot, particularly once it's been more than a couple weeks since you've gotten your second shot. So it's, it, it's OK to, to do some things that you did before. Oh, God,
1: I I mean, I, I agree with you and I'm so exhausted by the by the mask wearing discourse happening like who should wear wear a mask outside if you want to if you don't if you've been fully vaccinated and you don't want to wear a mask you don't have to science says you don't have to so but just like who cares just if people want to be extra cautious god bless fine but uh, like it's not some like personal affront if people are either choosing to vaccinate people (laughs) That's what I mean. Vaccinated people are choosing either to wear or not to wear uh, masks outside.
2: Yeah, I mean, one of the things that's been really making me mad is that, you know, living forever in the state of March 2020, that should not be where anyone who considers themselves a leftist or progressive is directing their energy right now. One of the biggest injustices that's happening in the world is the vaccine inequity. And these vaccines you know, they're not 100% effective, but they are really quite effective. And the fact is, we're living right now in a world where it's looking likely that many countries will not have uh, a a, a uh, big amount of their population vaccinated until like 2024. That is in large part because of the Uh, IP, um, and also because uh, of, uh, what's it called, of um, the, you know, Biden's executive order to uh, prevent uh, export of supplies. And, you know, we're in a situation in the United States where there's enough vaccine for everyone. Uh, The UK, there's enough vaccine for everyone. Multiple times over. um, I mean, there's, Biden ordered more vaccines than
1: people in the then residents of the United States. And yeah. So, and like more people than way more than, uh, people would be eligible. But As you said, there are currently, I mean, the fact there are intellectual property laws on these vaccines, there are pharmaceutical, pharmaceutical patents. Um, and you know, you have a lot of ghouls from big pharma, just looking to, um, Basically, keep the uh, keep those patents intact so that the the three companies. Oh shit! I'm sorry. Little June was blocking our view. She's so cute. <laughs> she just she just walked across the uh, the keyboard as she loves to do. Um, the uh, yeah, basically the patents. Uh, the the big pharmaceutical companies and the, the pharmaceutical lobbies want to keep the patents intact so that the uh, the companies that are manufacturing the vaccine can maintain a monopoly on the profits um and we've seen just the limits of uh of what some people consider uh progressivism
2: or liberalism or philanthropy like Bill Gates uh Oh my god, let's fucking drag this man. Wait, Bill I do want to say wait before we move into our full drag of Bill Gates, which we're going to do in just a second. I do want to say that Citations Needed has been doing I think the best job of breaking down what are some of the obstacles to all countries getting the vaccine and how uh, US imperialism is really playing out in a way that's going to end up costing Millions and millions of lives if we are not doing something different. So I just want to plug their vaccine episodes; they're so good. Now back to uh, our boy, billionaire philanthropist Bill Gates.
1: Billionaire philanthropist Bill Gates. Okay. Um. So Bill Gates did an interview and was asked about uh, whether or not whether or not the patents on the uh, vaccine should be rescinded, uh, should be waived rather. And he said no, and his reasoning, and I'm paraphrasing, was that how do we know that these other countries have the proper facilities to distribute the vaccine? It was this very like pater- paternalistic uh, view of like, well, what if, what if, what if we waive the vaccine patents and then other countries fuck it up? Like, that's not that's really so condescending. Yeah, not, like <laughs> you think that India doesn't have
2: they make a lot of the vaccines for us yeah like uh what if we give what if we give homeless people places to live and then they perform seances in their new apartments (laughs) what if
1: i mean it's just been it's been very that's why i you know after he said that i was just like i just never want to hear this fucking ghoul cool referred to as a philanthropist ever no
2: day. i mean particularly
1: because i don't care how much the gates foundation does for because that is what the gates foundation is supposed to do it's for quote-unquote global health um and you're not concerned with global health in the way that you purport to be if you are are for upholding the uh, the patents of a life-saving vaccine for people in more developing countries.
2: Yeah, Bill Gates um, is, you know, like other than probably the CEOs of Pfizer, Moderna and Johnson and Johnson, I think Bill Gates um, is on the most, um, you know, well-funded intense campaign to, convince people through all of these BS reasonings like, oh, well, you know, how do we know that they're going to be able to do an okay job? He's he's on a a one man mission to make sure that um, other countries do not have uh, sovereignty over how we're not an isolationist
1: country. No country is really in the the age of globalization. Wow, I just I just made myself a cuck mm-hmm. by mention, mentioning uh, glo- globalization, but it's if other countries don't reach like the United States is probably not going to reach herd immunity. That's what uh, a a study showed, and not anytime soon.
2: But that doesn't mean that the pandemic won't end. Right. Yes. But
1: what will definitely. Hinder the pandemic from ending in this country anyways, is if all the other countries don't get up to speed with vaccination because people are coming out. People travel from the U.S. uh, People travel to the U.S. all the time. It's pretty obvious that uh, that would be uh, a major uh, impediment to us getting back to any sort of post pandemic pandemic. World, and also I just want to shout out uh, another person who sucks uh, and who has really disappointed me, Howard Dean. Um, Oh yeah, well he's been disappointing for a long time. He's been disappointing for a long time. I'm just like I'm still stuck in running for president, Howard Dean, from like what 2004, what was it? Um, But he was, I mean, he was former governor of Vermont. He was pretty. I mean, he was pretty progressive for definitely for early 2000s. Uh,
2: yeah, he, he had a little turn towards the center. Yeah,
1: it's been really terrible to see. Um, he was, for whatever reason, uh, in the, the UK elections, just really uh, standing the Lib Dems, which is not the party you want to be backing uh, over there. But uh,
2: I don't Ryan, know. Ryan Graham, plug for Ryan Graham, wrote a, a lot of uh, he wrote about a uh, Dean's heel turn a lot in his book, which was great. It's, so some background so, there. It's so
1: disappoint. It's so disappointing. Yeah. Um, and but Howard Dean now uh, is a lobbyist for this huge multinational law firm, and they specifically, um, you know, have a lot of dealings with the pharmaceutical industry. Uh, so he has been tweeting up a storm about how uh, waving the vaccine patents won't do anything. And I was like, sir, you are terrible.
2: Yeah, the waving the vaccine patents won't do anything. Um, that's, you know, that's one of those statements that, you know, gets just repeated without really – adequate interrogation whatsoever it's pretty clear what the intention of that is um it's like you know <laughs> it's, it's it is like one of those things where people are like oh we can't give homeless people money because there's you know they'll just spend it on booze or whatever where there's like so much fucking wrong with it or like so you know well guess what I, you can't do
1: anything with the vaccine besides Have it be a vaccine. Oh, yeah. I mean, it shouldn't be a controversial issue for anyone. It is absolutely absurd.
2: Yeah. I mean, it's like it's not our job to to manage that. Yeah. You know, like it's not, you know, like what other you know, what facilities are built, you know, what facilities exist already. Like it's just, you know, none of this is any kind of justification for like, you know, withholding um, the patents, or I don't know if withholding the patents is the right word, but like none of this is like, you know, putting this stuff, be- the the like vaccine recipes, I don't know a lot about science, but behind, you know, the patent wall so that, um, you know, it's, and, and especially when so many of these, when a lot of the research for these vaccines was publicly funded, like it's, you know, it's not like these companies did not like, come up with this shit on their own like the government and you know by extension you know Americans paid for this you know and uh it's it's very very frustrating it's very immoral um on a on a lighter note of like dissing Bill Gates um (laughs) Bill and Melinda Bill and Melinda uh there you know she's she's leaving him I, I like to think that like somewhere in there um it was you know like bill you know you're just you're way too emotionally closed off um the sex is dead and also yeah you're gonna be responsible for the deaths of millions around the world i'm i'm not down with that but she's probably just as much of a ghoul as him if not if not more you know it was the yeah. Bl- bill and melinda gates foundation they've been in this together No.
1: Um, even the you know the microchip and her vaccine couldn't make her stay with bill
2: yeah pearl has a microchip <laughs> inside of her yeah They came microchipped, which is good because I don't know if I would have been brave enough to get them microchipped, but (laughs) now I can find them if they go away. Um, Yeah, so what a week um, they have no prenup so she's getting half no prenup yeah. oh my god I th- i've i been thinking about like grimes melinda, melinda get yours yeah <laughs> mackenzie bezos she's out you know that, that was a fucking gross um that was a, a gross 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 like just saying it was disgusting how you know, we all had to know about Jeff Bezos's sex, uh, like, as in oh. his sexual tech messages. It's disgusting that we had to know about the fact that they were fucking other people. I'm not trying to be, like, anti polly I am. Jeff Bezos <laughs> not. Look, yeah, I, I, I'll i be real. I have compl- complicated feelings on this matter, and I'm not going to explain them all in, you know, in uh in this I'm just, playing, I'm just
1: playing I'm just playing my role as the the sex negative uh, <laughs> member of this show
2: I mean I do think that there is a certain way where like at least the kind of like very silicon valley type of like polyamory like it's it's starting to to talk about people as if they are like commodities you know like this person meets this set of needs or whatever As very popular uh in <laughs> the Silicon Valley area, and, and Jeff Bezos, like, his whole deal felt like it was very much part of that, but that's not the reason that he's disgusting. He's disgusting because of, you know, the the exploitation that he's done of other people, which have allowed him to, to make all this money, and Bill Gates, you know, same situation. I'm just waiting for Grimes to get out, though. Get out, Grimes. Get out. You know, that, I'm sorry, but her alien scars
1: back tattoo was a cry for help.
2: <laughs> yeah, man, I, I fucking love when her mom beefed with elon musk you know that was so funny um it was great when they beefed online um good for good on grimes's mom cool lady um cool yeah canadian, the, canadian lady the last thing that i wanted to just briefly touch on is this like woke cia ad and i'm <laughs> sure a lot of people have been um you know have if you've been online at all you've seen that but i'm, I'm just gonna play a little bit of, uh, of it here, it's pretty, uh, pretty wild.
0: When I was 17, I quoted Zora Neale Hurston's How It Feels to Be Colored Me in my college application essay. The line that spoke to me stated simply, I am not tragically colored. There is no sorrow dammed up in my soul nor lurking behind my eyes. I do not mind at all. At 17, I had no idea what life would bring, but Sora's sentiment articulated so beautifully how I felt as a daughter of immigrants then and now. Nothing about me was or is tragic. I am perfectly made. I can wax eloquent on complex legal issues in English while also belting guayaquil de mis amores in Spanish. I can change a diaper with one hand and console a crying toddler with the other. I am a woman of color, I am a mom, I am a cisgender millennial who's been diagnosed with generalized anxiety disorder. I am intersectional, but my existence is not a box-checking exercise. I am a walking declaration, a woman whose inflection does not rise at the end of her sentences, suggesting that a question has been asked. I did not sneak into CIA. My employment was not and is not the result of a fluke or slip through the cracks. I earned my way in, and I earned my way up the ranks of this organization. I am educated, qualified, and competent, and sometimes I struggle. I struggle feeling like I could do more, be more to my two sons, and I struggle leaving the office when I feel there's so much more to do. I used to struggle with imposter syndrome, but at 36, I refuse to internalize misguided, patriarchal ideas of what a woman can or should be. I am tired of feeling like I'm supposed to apologize for the space I occupy rather than intoxicate people with my effort, my brilliance. I am proud of me, full stop. My parents left everything they knew and loved to expose me to opportunities they never had. Because of them, I stand here today a proud first-generation Latina and officer at CIA. I am unapologetically me. I want you to be unapologetically you, whoever you are. Know your worth, command your space.
2: Okay. So- what? <laughs> oh, Have you not seen this
1: before? No, I had, oh my God. I'm actually so glad that I saw it for the first time here. I am, I cannot believe. I am a cisgender
2: millennial who has been diagnosed with generalized anxiety disorder. <laughs> Me too, baby. <laughs> Me too. What are the, you know, but this okay. So I'm excited to be the person to to inform you of this whole. So the CIA released this woke recruitment ad, um, and you know, <laughs> it's um it, <laughs> it's it's pretty ridiculous. Um, like. There's been a lot of debate about this, and we have all of the usual, like, you know, anti-woke suspects being like, okay, you know, so, like, the CIA is now using, you know, woke language, woke language is now the, the, uh, the language of, you know, oppressive forces, and, you know, it's just kind of the classic same debate about like does the fact that like you know identity politics is weaponized in this way this surely being one of the most egregious examples i've ever seen mean that like talking about things like um you know intersectionality or uh you know generalized anxiety disorder like does that mean that like that stuff is you know inherently bad no of course not that's a dumb 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 take uh, there's definitely people uh you know, saying that this is like a, a full on CIA psyop, um, which is, <laughs> I honestly seems like pretty, you know, <laughs> pretty likely to me. But, um, you know, that basically, You know, I mean, it's just really ridiculous because like particularly like in in talking, you know, this this ad, she's like, I'm a woman of color. Like what the fucking CIA has done, you know, to people of color, people from Spanish speaking countries, I mean, really funding fucking death squads, um, terrorizing with coup attempts, uh, you know, rigging elections, assassination plots. I mean, really just like. I mean, the thing, so the thing about this is that actually
1: this, I'm sure in some circles will be very effective because, you know, like the police force in a lot of ways, like a lot of police jobs, with the CIA, you can make like a pretty good living. Um, You have a lot of job security. And if you're piling, like... You're bilingual that is who they want actually they want like they are uh, i don't know this makes me really i mean my my retired cop dad used to always like right when i was graduating from college he would be like you should look into the cia pathways program oh my um, god and at the time i was you know i was 22 and i was like i don't know about that um but i still was like I don't know. Uh that would be cool to have a any job that isn't waiting tables. Um I looked into it and it's as it's uh it was not for me. Um but basically they do want people from different background. they they have an abundance of uh white male applicants. And so unfortunately, yeah, that's this is is tapping into something very uh they are trying to attract different kinds of people and it's they can make it look i mean not this ad but they but certainly with the benefits that you get on like a government salary um yeah it's this is tough but anyways i'm not i'm not cia
2: yeah, it's pretty, uh, it, it's, it's, pretty ridiculous. Um, obviously, you know, the sad is just, I mean, it's, you know, to such, such a sinister purpose. Like you could not conceive of like, something oh, that causes. It's so bad. It's like, I'm a woman and I'm a
1: woman of color and I'm a, I'm a working mom and. I think the dude that the mental health stuff in there. I'm an inner, I'm an, I'm intersectional. That's not a. That's not how that word is. Sorry to be like a white woman saying this, but that's not what that word means. You don't yeah. say I am intersectional.
2: Yeah, I, it's like saying I am diverse or something, <laughs> which is a thing that people, you know, say. But I mean, not, no one really says I am diverse, but people will say like, "Oh, we're looking for someone diverse." It's like. What? Yeah, I don't know. But yeah, I mean, this is definitely I, I think I'm going to go ahead and call uh, the reply guy of the week, the CIA. The CIA. <laughs> um, all right. So we have an excellent interview for you this week. You want to tell a little bit about it, Julia?
1: I would love to. So, you know, a lot of you have uh, asked a lot of questions about my dad. Uh, and is my dad ever going to be a guest on the podcast? Maybe someday I don't know if uh, I don't know if I could personally handle that But um, but we'll see But I, I will say that So this week I had uh, The pleasure and the honor of interviewing India Walton Who is running for mayor of Buffalo, New York um, And she and I talked about a whole host of issues that are central to her campaign Um, housing and uh, public health and perhaps the most central being uh, public safety and policing and you know we talked about the state of policing in buffalo and just uh, in in america real large and i uh you know talked about the the many differences of opinion that my dad and I have uh, on on policing, as um, as he is, as as many of our listeners know, a retired cop. Uh, maybe someday he will be a guest on the show, and you can get a little glimpse into my personal hell every single day. <laughs> uh, but. Uh, I really love this interview. India is so impressive, and she's an incredible. Uh, she's an incredible candidate. She's been endorsed by the DSA and Working Families Party. Uh, she's a working mom. She's intersectional. She, yeah, she is a working mom. Uh, yeah. She's intersectional. She does not work for the CIA.
2: Yeah.
1: <laughs> uh, <laughs> um, but she's she's so so great, and I really hope that. Um, that you enjoy this interview as much as I did because I learned so much, and I hope that you uh, you visit her website and take a take a look at at uh, at her platform if you can.
2: Wonderful. All right. Well, we have a great uh, Patreon episode that just came out. It's with um, Brandi Posey, who is a comedian in LA. She's really awesome. Um, we're doing another Patreon episode this week about the ongoing free speech debate and uh, yeah, please become a subscriber for five bucks a month. We are getting better equipment uh, which is an investment we're trying to pay our producer. If you can throw us $5 a month, we will be eternally grateful. We're putting really good stuff on there. So thank you so much. And, and we also uh, give us some more ratings
1: and reviews on Apple Podcasts. We always appreciate those Oh, too. yes.
2: So the last tell one me, isn't the guy that
1: says that about you. Tell me that my personality is good or else I will kill myself.
2: <laughs> <laughs> Julia has generalized anxiety disorder i am a
1: millennial with generalized anxiety disorder
2: (laughs) cisgender all right thank you so much i will see you later (laughs) just listen to reply guys
1: and i walked into the room and i was the only
3: woman
2: the female fallout podcast our mission is to expose the forces behind gender inequality in today's workforce you'll hear stories of sexual harassment and domestic violence
0: i left i moved across the country because i didn't feel safe here and i was terrified that i was going to run into him she's getting all these opportunities not because she's putting the effort in but because she has to be sleeping with someone
2: and widespread accounts of gender-based bias. I just remember, again, my boss saying, you need to think about what you really want. Do you want to be a career woman or do you want to just stay at home? We'll learn, alongside experts in the field, the most critical issues facing working women today. We've worked with women who have literally had to pack their stuff up in the middle of the night. And what does that mean for your job? And we know that all of these kinds of appearance rules, quote unquote, um, are not only gendered, but they're highly raced and they're highly classed. Together, we'll discover what it's going to take to drive real change. The, The laws don't look like how we experience life because the laws have been written by men. And that is a fact. And now there are women in the room rewriting and writing new laws to make sure that they reflect the realities of our lives. This is the Female Fallout Podcast. Head on over to femalefallout.com to subscribe on your favorite podcast listening app. Just listen to.
1: Hello, and welcome back to Reply, guys. I am so excited today. We have our first ever mayoral candidate on the show today. Um, She is a local uh, organizer, and she is running for
3: mayor of Buffalo, New York. India Walton, welcome to the show. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. I'm excited to be here.
1: Okay. So I am, I, Kate and I both live in, in Brooklyn. I've actually never been to Buffalo, but I know many people from there. Can you tell us just off the bat a little bit about the city of Buffalo and about who makes up your constituency and, and who you are?
3: Sure. I would love to. Buffalo is my beloved community. I was born and raised here, educated here. I'm a Buffalo girl through and through. Um, Buffalo is a rust belt city, um, typical of places similar to Cleveland, Ohio, Pittsburgh and the like, Uh, old steel town. And at the end of the sunset of the industrial revolution has had quite a few challenges. This is a blue collar and beer type city. We all love our Buffalo Bills and our Sabres. Unfortunately, it's not been doing too well this season, but um, we, love our, <laughs> <laughs> we, love our, we love our sports. Um, we, we love our beer and we are a city on the water. Um, I am running for mayor of Buffalo because this is a working class city. And uh, for the last 16 years, I've lived under an administration that has not prioritized working class people. And I'm running to change that, to put people over profits and prioritize the working class over developers and wealthy corporations.
1: So, India, we understand um, that you have a pretty strong background in the community you have strong roots in the community obviously you said you're buffalo born and raised uh and i'm sure that buffalo has not been immune to many of the problems that are facing you know major cities across the country and i know that the you know as you mentioned buffalo is a rust belt city and the rust belt cities were hit especially hard, uh, during the financial crisis. Um, how have you seen your city change, uh, over the decades since you've lived there?
3: Sure. Um, Buffalo has definitely shifted from a city of industry more into service. We have a really robust healthcare um, system here. It's funny because every time I start talking, it says my internet connection is unstable. So I understand what you mean now. Uh, so I'll, I'll try and, I'll try and slow it down, (laughs) um, slow, slow down my speech so that you can get everything of what I'm saying. Um, but you know, we have we really shifted away from industry into service healthcare and hospitality sectors. And most recently there is a focus on technology and tech startups. The unfortunate part is that people who are from here have not necessarily been at the forefront of these new industries. So what we see is that wages and job creation and growth have not kept up in general with the rate of inflation. So that's one of the largest challenges that we face is that we're one of the poorest cities in the nation. Um, childhood poverty, crime has skyrocketed under the current administration. So in order to solve those problems, we really have to tackle the inequities in our educational system and in the employment sector.
1: I I completely agree. And I, I understand that you're also, you've been very involved in um, the, the housing justice, movement um as far as you know i i know that just here in new york state we have the upstate downstate coalition um housing has kind of reached a crisis point in america writ large but um particularly in cities where income inequality is growing rapidly cities with these you know new industries coming in that only allow for a few people to prosper. It's been of massive importance. Um, What would you like to see? How would you like to see the housing crisis solved in Buffalo in particular?
3: I have the honor of being the founding executive director of a very old and yet locally innovative solution to the housing crisis, and that is the Fruit Belt Community Land Trust. I believe in cooperative and collective ownership of land and resources. I believe in worker owners for businesses and as executive director of the Fruit Belt Community Land Trust, Not only was I able to take an organization, a startup nonprofit, from its infancy into um, a position of fiscal maturity and health, Um, we built two homes for ownership. And before stepping down to run for mayor, I successfully put a 50-unit, $25 million project into the pipeline. So as mayor, I'm really looking forward to being able to expand opportunities for community ownership. And for limited equity co-ops, I believe that when people own where they live, you have more skin in the game, so to speak. So there's more pride taken in the community. You see a natural reduction in crime, uh, st- stable, safe, healthy, affordable housing is the hallmark to pathways into successful education for our children to improved health outcomes and increased health equity and really the first step in closing the racial wealth gap. And that's what we need to be doing here in Buffalo and all over the country.
1: Could not agree more. I, you know, we talk about housing a lot on the show and one of the aspects of it that keeps coming up over and over again is that housing is a healthcare issue. Housing is an education issue. It truly has its tentacles in every aspect that builds a functional society, and that's why you know many of the the cities in America that we now see as kind of like capitalist dystopias. Uh, you know, the the first inkling of that was a housing crisis, and people people do not see too many people do not see the link between housing becoming increasingly unaffordable and explosion in population of people experiencing homelessness. Um, because I think we just, we do like our society does everything that it can to kind of to dehumanize people experiencing homelessness when the average person in this country is closer to experiencing homelessness than they are to being a millionaire um but that is kind of uh the the American cognitive dissonance that that we live in (laughs) um so I I love your platform I looked I looked on your website um I I, community land trusts are actually something that we haven't talked about a lot on the show. Um, That's to me, that's like a very advanced uh, form of, of the housing justice movement. Like that's, you know, when we, we talk about, I'm in the, um, the DSA housing working group here in Brooklyn. We talk a lot about community land trust as like almost an end game. Uh, So the fact that you, you've already been able to do so much great work with that is is really incredible. Um, Yeah, I would, I mean, and, and it makes a lot of you, you are endorsed by both the working families party and the DSA. Um, Tell me a little bit about where you think the leadership failings have been that have gotten Buffalo into uh, a place that, that you wanted to, kind of pitch in and, and help fix?
3: That is one of my favorite questions. <laughs> <laughs> Every Everywhere. Yeah. Um, and I think that the crux of it is just that there's this whole top-down strategy that folks are used to, um, not only in Buffalo, but everywhere, right? You ex- you expect the people at the top to be the, the brightest and smartest and have all the solutions. And we know that that's not the way to get it done. We know that people know what they need, where they want. And the community land trust is just one example of what communities and neighborhoods can do for themselves when they're well resourced and have the cooperation of our elected officials. And that's what I really look forward to being able to facilitate as the leader um, of the second largest city in New York state, is to be able to work with residents. Um, you know, a lot of times we use the word citizen or voters, but I want to work with residents, right? Folks who are not yet 18, folks whose immigration status may may be in question. Um, you know, we serve at the pleasure of the people and by the consent of the governed. And, you know, our voter registration card does not tell us who we govern because we govern all people um, regardless of whether they are able to vote or not. So that's, that's the one thing is just flipping the, the strategy upside down, right? We Mm -hmm. don't put our investments at the top with large developers and corporations um, for a couple hundred low wage jobs and think that that is the solution. We put the investments on the ground. We invest in, safe, affordable housing, we invest more in education, we invest in our returning citizens and provide resources to people because there is where we build community, um, build up people. And I think this notion of rugged individualism is a horrible lie that we've been fed that someone needs to begin to challenge. And the exciting thing to me is that I'm the, the first person and that I can recollect in the history of Buffalo politics that has been openly willing to say that socialism is what we should expect. We provide mm. subsidies and assistance to rich people all the time and rich people are going to be OK. And now it's time that we shift our priorities and prioritize the workers, the, the poor people, the people who've lived on the margins and the fringes of our society for far too long and say that actually, the investments and the money that comes in from the federal and state government belongs to you belongs to us. You should, mm-hmm. de- you should decide not only how it's spent, but you should also be able to benefit from it. I could
1: not, could not agree with that more. Uh, it's the famous, you know, the famous, uh, quotation that, uh, America has, uh, socialism for the rich and rugged individualism for the poor. Um, it's, it's completely true. And, you know, we've seen that really, we've seen that really acutely during the the past year of the, the coronavirus pandemic with how much the, certainly the federal government um, bent over backwards to send aid to corporations. Um, you know, we saw that during the financial crisis as well, that uh, corporations were the first... You know the big banks were the the first industries that got that got a bailout, um, and you know people have had two or three stimulus checks. Uh, in individuals have had two or th- two or three stimulus checks. Many people haven't gotten all three, um, and people are really suffering. And there's. I think it's becoming increasingly clear that it's this suffering is is needless because we are the the wealthiest nation in the world uh, the amount of money that the government uh spends to give corporations subsidies and tax cuts for the rich could be easily reallocated to make life better for the 99% of us who aren't
3: billionaires. (laughs) It's, It's amazing. It's amazing that it took a global pandemic for us to figure that out, right? That you can provide healthcare for people at no cost, that you can cancel rent that you can actually give people a minimum standard of living and they'll still go to work <laughs> if they can. Uh, mm-hmm. Yeah. So if, if anything good came from from the pandemic, it's, it's that we've proven that these things are not only feasible, but they're actually good for the economy yeah
1: and the you know to that point the u s d a also instituted a free lunch program in the past year for children um that was massively successful and addressed the uh, i'll say it again dystopian concept of school lunch debt um which should not exist so you have you have an interesting background uh yourself you uh, from, it's my understanding that you were uh, a nurse by, by trade. Um, mm-hmm. and you were the the head of the, of your
3: local, your local nurses union. Is that correct? Um, so I, I am a nurse by trade and I wasn't the head of the union, but I was uh, a delegate member of 1199 SEIU. So I did represent, um, Rank and file members in grievances, disciplinary actions, uh things like that. And do you do you feel
1: that your your time as a delegate in the union kind of informed the way that you're running now?
3: Absolutely. Yeah. Um trade unionism and just Being an organizer and being a trained organizer definitely impacts the way I'm running this campaign. I am very dependent upon the power of people and relationships rather than, you know, large funders and donors to the campaign, which I know both are necessary, but when elected, I want to be a person that is accountable to the people that works with people and, doesn't owe favors to to folks who are going to have interests that are not those of the folks who I represent, which are everyday people just like me.
1: Right. I think that, um, you know, I've been a union member for the past, only the past three years. And I have just from attending union meetings, uh, I have learned so much uh, just about this is one of the reasons why I would, I would love if, if everyone could be in a union because I think that just from the, the basics uh, you learn so much about your rights as a worker and what your rights should be as a worker. Um, And I just I think it's it's a really invaluable experience uh even outside of, you know, the the wonderful protections uh that being in a union affords you. Um, I another part of your your campaign platform that um I, that I took a look at and that was, you know, directed to me by I think one of your uh, one of your staff was uh police reform and public safety. Um and on your website you actually have a very specific and detailed um description of how you will you want to change uh policing and public safety in Buffalo in your first six months, in your first year, in your you know, years one to four. Uh can you talk to to us a little bit about that?
3: Sure. I have lived um, under this current administration and watched the evolution of the Buffalo Police Department. And I was a, a member of a group of folks who did a policing survey back in 2016, where community members began to sound the alarm about the relationship between Buffalo Police and the community. Buffalo Police once had a division called Strike Force and Strike Force was Uh, sort of a a rogue division of the Buffalo police. They didn't belong to a station house. So if you were pulled over by a member of Strike Force, you you couldn't really complain about it. They would have pop-up checkpoints where they would just set up and block off a street and pull over every single car that went through and and check your registration and, and sometimes illegally um stop and, and search people and ultimately the, the ALCU filed suit and it was deemed that they were doing illegal stops. You you can't do that, right? Um yeah. And this is a detail that was established under the Brown administration. And as I said earlier, we've seen an uptick in crime. We know that stop and frisk and broken windows policing Does not work. So I really am hell-bent on going through the police budget line by line because what we know is that more police does not keep us safer. We have more police. We have a larger police budget than we ever have had in the history of the city of Buffalo. However, we have more crime, more unsolved crime, more violent crime. And the way to reduce crime is by reducing poverty. That's a fact that is data driven, it's been proven. We need to have year round youth employment. We need to have community centers that are open and fully staffed. We need to have pathways and entry points into union, good living wage jobs. And when you get to the root causes of, of crime, then you are able to have a healthier, safer community you know, I believe strongly also as a union member that you don't make rules for the worker without engaging the workers. You can't have a reform agenda without having spoken to police officers. And I am willing to bet that if I go to a patrol officer and I say, hey, I don't want you to respond to mental health calls anymore because there are professionals that we have that can do that. And I want you to focus on the job that you were actually hired to do, which is police work, not mental health work, right? We have operated under austerity budgets. We have cut social services. We've cut mental health services. Our our social safety net programs have been decimated. And now all of those social programs that used to uphold these other parts of our community, we dump onto the police. So the institution of policing in and of itself is I can't even say it's broken. It's functioning how it was designed to, right? Yes. But while we dismantle and reimagine what community safety looks like, we also have to remove a lot of the the discretion, right? We have to remove the discretion because we know that unequivocally when it comes to a person who was black or brown or LGBTQ that officers behave differently so if we just remove that discretion from the interaction and say you just don't respond to mental health calls you just don't do traffic enforcement you strictly deal with crimes and with um issues where someone's safety is at risk Mm -hmm. then that's that's step one the other thing, like I said, is is really investing in community and making sure that we're getting to the root causes of issues. Um, but the goal overall is abolition. How do yes. we create a world? And we, we're not we're not even close. Right. And it's it's uncomfortable to talk about to people, especially. Community members who are experiencing community violence and also violence at the hands of the police, but how do we get to a point in our society? How do we envision a world where we don't need police because there's so much love and care in our community that that is how we exist? That there is a process for restoration when someone is harmed or wronged and, you know, the, the end game for me is that we eliminate that, but I acknowledge that we don't get there overnight. It's a process. And I might not see it in my lifetime, but I can lay the foundation and groundwork to start moving us in that direction.
1: Right. And I think you're exactly right. Um, We have seen so many times social services slashed and like you said, austerity budgets and austerity budgets never seem to make their way to the police departments. Um, That is, and I say that as and listeners of our show, uh, no, I'm from Massachusetts. My, uh, my father, uh, was a, a police officer for 30 years. Um, I think that I, I know more, I've seen more up close about the, uh, the dysfunction of, uh, of police departments than, than most people have. Um, and I, I couldn't agree with you more. I actually was talking to my dad and I don't agree on a lot. If you couldn't, <laughs> uh, you maybe couldn't guess, but um, politically, and uh, you know, I was talking to him about traffic stops. Um, and I, you know, basically the police uh stopping people who have expired registration on their car, and my dad was like, Well, we don't, you know when we were doing that we just are looking at the sticker we do, and i said okay so you're i i think that it's adorable that you're alleging that that's like in some way <laughs> blind but inherently regardless even regardless of the race of that person that's a largely that is a a poverty tax mm-hmm. uh it's a someone who didn't have the money to renew the registration on their car and that person still has to go to work. So they are using their vehicle because they still have to go to work and now you are giving them a citation that is going to cost them more money. It's the same, I mean, and because of the economics of this, you know, this country and the way that um, black and brown people, black people in particular, have been kind of socio- have been socioeconomically kept down for generations. Even if you think that that is blind, you are—it's disproportionately affecting black people,
0: mm-hmm.
1: and that is again. I don't think that that. I think you're completely right. I don't think that that is a broken system. I think that is the way the system was designed in a way that. You know, police departments can pat themselves on the back saying, well, that's we're just, fo- we're just following the law <laughs> and it's, uh, you know, it's a blind system. We don't know who, who owns the car, but they know who owns the cars. Um, and yes, I think, I mean, our family friend in Massachusetts, uh, their son was killed by Newton police two months ago. Uh, who were responding to a, uh, you know, he was having a mental health episode, and he lived in an apartment above a candy store, and he was in the candy store having this episode. The police were called to the scene, and he was killed. Um, and you know, he's he's he was white, and this is a this is something that i i think about a lot is that as we were talking about before when other services are slashed the police budgets never are like in the the 1980s a lot of the mental the state mental health facilities um were dismantled essentially because it came out that they were you know kind of treating their patients inhumanely and the the plan was for them to be, the, the residents there to be transitioned to smaller local facilities. And that really never happened. So those people largely ended up on the street.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And the people who then had to deal with them or who were tasked with, quote unquote, dealing with them were the police. And the police are not, equipped mental health professionals. I don't think that's a controversial thing to say.
3: <laughs> <laughs> it's not controversial at all nor I mean, you know, I I even have concerns about the mental health of officers themselves when you are in a a job where you are constantly exposed to crises and trauma, it takes a toll on your own mental health. I can say that as a nurse. I was just thinking about um We've had two really bad domestic violence um, incidences in Buffalo recently. One was an 18-year-old girl who was found dead in the park and it, her, her partner allegedly killed her and then another one was shot. And the news story and the, the Buffalo police spokesperson is saying, oh, well, people should be reaching out for help. And it's like, yeah, but when people are reaching out for help, they're afraid to call you. Yeah, Because more often than not, you don't come to help. You actually escalate the situation. And I think the same holds true for these mental health situations. And, you know, anytime you call police, um, you know, I've I've been saying for a number of years, like, contrary to popular belief, police are not first responders. We've right. watched over and over again, them gun people down and watch them bleed out. Or you know show up first to a scene, but are are not equipped to render first aid or cPR right they, like we have to get out of the mindset that calling nine one one is our first line of defense and really build up the systems in our community that are going to care for people in a holistic way so when you need actual help, you can call someone who's there to help who's not there to police or or punish um and like I said we're a long way from there but I believe that all of these things are possible for us as a society.
1: I I think so to it's it it does feel it feels far away and it feels hard to see but I think that the past few years have been something of a of a turning point in the 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 hearts and minds of a lot of Americans just because these things are on camera now um but as you said the you know many times when police are called to a scene they do not deescalate they further escalate the situation the um you know the the son of our family friend that was that was an instance in which the police were called to deescalate and they ended up murdering him <laughs> and i you know, I, that was a nervous laugh by the way. I, I don't know, like I'm, I will, you know, these are people that I've I've known since I was a child and I will never be able to understand the pain and loss of their family. And I feel that way every time I see the family of a person whose life was Taken by by the police. And it's I think that abolition should not be as kind of controversial an issue as it is when we see that again, the system is designed, it's working as designed, and therefore we need a new system.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And again, it's not, you know, it's not just. Police are supposed to be partners in their community, and they are not acting as such. They are, you know, largely, obviously, there are thousands of police forces throughout the United States, but police departments rather, but they are not acting as partners, as members of that community. Even if they don't live there, they are not acting as members of that community, which is what they are supposed to do. And it's not, it's not working, it's not a great system for police either. You know, police have some of the highest rates of divorce, highest rates of suicide, highest, you know, highest rates of alcoholism of any profession. Um, You know, again, I've seen, I've seen a lot of that up close. Uh, I don't, having a cop dad is not someone I, something I wish on anyone. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, but I, I think that if you can look at the way that policing exists in this country today, it's difficult to not say, throw it all out, just start, start fresh because the way that it is now is just it's making it's in a lot of cases it's making our communities less safe absolutely and you know you can because there is no you know the the argument that i get in with my dad a lot is like a lot of these instances he says like it's improper training it's improper training and there <laughs> is no amount of training that will fix some of these police departments It is a, you know, and I am really tired of the uh, a few bad apples argument because the adage is a few bad apples spoils the bunch or the bushel or whatever. It means the whole thing is
3: bad. (laughs) (laughs) But, you know, policing in this country, you know, while we're talking about apples and and bunches and bushels, policing in this country is in the soil, Mm -hmm. right? Like, police are an evolution of slave patrols yep. that were invented um you know after the abolition of slavery and, and and during slavery to reclaim back when when black people were considered property right mm-hmm. and then when we look past reconstruction the reason why there are so many um, people of Italian-American descent in police forces is because, you know, there used to be this class solidarity, but at a certain point it was like, hey, at least you're not them, mm-hmm. right? Like you can you can be, you can have this position of power and if you keep those people in line, then you'll be okay. So we have to have courageous conversations about what it means to be a police officer in this country, the founding of police, and what the purpose of police is, and while we're talking about it, you know, we have a system that is more concerned with protecting property yes. than it is with protecting people and being in service. We have a huge issue. That's exactly right? that's and,
1: exactly what I was going to say. That policing has become, and perhaps has always been, about protecting private property. Um, and in a city where, like, like New York per se, two thirds of us are renters. Most of us don't own, and the people who do own are largely in the upper echelons uh, of of income and net worth of wealth. You're creating a like a very stark two tiered justice system. Or it's a modern day
3: pass system.
1: Yes. Um, yeah, I couldn't, I couldn't agree with that more. And to your point earlier about union jobs, um, and more, I, I, I've said this f- from the beginning that we need more access to union jobs that do not require advanced degrees or, um, Because a lot of people, and I include my father, my, my father would, would say this as well, go into the, join the academy because, so that that they can get a, a decent paying job and a pension. Um, And there have to be more avenues for that than becoming an arm of the state. (laughs) I... And you know, I again, this was a, a conversation I had I had with him not too long ago. He was very involved in, you know, hiring new cadets out of the academy. And he always said, the, the the cop that you don't want out of the academy is the one who's always wanted to be a cop. You don't want anyone who's too eager because those are the ones who are, you know, all the ones that we end up seeing on on the news. Um, mm-hmm. And I said, well. Unfortunately, it seems like those are the only people who are becoming cops now. Um I don't know, you know he my dad was a uh he went to school to be a teacher and ended up becoming a, a cop, which is a lot to unpack, but uh
3: <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> like okay, how how'd you get here?
1: <laughs> well, it's I mean, how it was the the money and the pension it was that's mm-hmm. that's it and that's again it, all of these things are are intertwined and we you know i'm i'm from uh i'm from the greater boston area we remember what happened with the uh you know the the scandal in in the catholic church about how the church was just moving around bad priests who mm-hmm. who had been accused of assault Police departments are doing much the same thing. Um, I, you know, I knew of an officer who was just transferred to a different town, different. And what you're doing is you're just exposing more and more communities to that officer's harm. Again, it's not the whole system is I don't know how anyone can look at it and think, let's keep going with this uh it's really dispiriting but I'm uh I'm so I'm so happy that there are people like you um who are running for office and and poised to make to make real change in communities and hopefully set a precedent moving forward um you know we've already seen At the DA level, that's um, there have been you know cities like Philadelphia. Philadelphia uh, has uh, Larry Krasner as their Mm -hmm. district attorney, who was a public defender. um, In many, you know, the the standard used to be that the uh, prosecutors were the only ones who had a pipeline to becoming the district attorney, and I think that it shows a lot of of progress and hopefully more to come, uh, that not just Larry Krasner, but in, you know, following his, his big win in cities all over the, um, all over the country, more public defenders, uh, have been, uh, running for district attorney and winning.
3: Yeah, um, we have a, we have a woman who's a local, um, public defender who's running for city court judge, uh, right in in this cycle, uh so that's encouraging
1: yeah i i I can only hope that that more and more and i I think that people are increasingly aware of the ways that public safety, the idea of public safety at the policy level has kind of have become really misguided and perverted um and i'm uh you know it's it's a really difficult time <sighs> right now obviously there's just there's a lot of pain in this country um that has been caused at the hands of police and but i am hopeful that there again there are people like you who are who are offering something different. Um, Better. I just, I think something better. Yeah. I think again, I, you know, I'll say this unequivocally. I think, uh, I think being a police officer reinforced so many aspects, so many of the worst aspects of, of my dad's personality. This is completely anecdotal, but it's again it's just not a job i uh as as it exists today it's not a job i would wish on most people <laughs> um and i think there is there's is a lot that is um just fundamentally rotten about policing in america um but i don't have to tell you that you obviously yeah. know that as well um so India, as we come to, to a close here, is there anything else about your platform that you that you want our listeners
3: to know? Um, I would just say that it is holistic and robust. <laughs> there is quite a bit of detail in it. I would encourage people to visit the website at www.indiawalton.com. This is an insurgent and people-powered campaign and um, the ability to volunteer and donate is not reserved only for folks in Buffalo. You can do that from all across the state and country. So please, uh, give me your $5 and (laughs) sign up for a phone banking session.
1: (laughs) Absolutely. Well, I, I, I can't thank you enough for taking the time to, to speak to me. Um, I, I wish you all the best of luck. I'm so excited about your campaign and I, uh, I hope to be calling you, uh, Mayor Walton, uh, the next, the next time we speak. Yes, absolutely.
3: Thank you so much. Thanks.
1: Thank you so much for listening to Reply Guys. If you like the show, please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts and subscribe to our Patreon at patreon.com forward slash reply guys, where we have a catalog of over 25 bonus interviews with renowned writers, journalists, and comedians with an additional episode uploaded each week. The show is hosted by Kate Willett and me, Julia Clare. Our producer is Genevieve Garrity. Our theme song was performed by Emily Framgen, who wrote the song with Kate Willett. Our artwork is by Adrian Lobel. If you want to find us on Twitter, we're at Kate Willett with two L's and two T's. And I'm at O Julia Tweets, O H Julia Tweets. And Twitter is where you can, of course, also find our reply guys. They are always with us. Bernie, take us out.